All these nations are going to come against Israel, which will make no doubt the Antichrist a star as a man of peace, but God will supernaturally deliver them. I mean, bullets and bombs won't accomplish their purposes, and God will spare Israel. You cannot spare Israel. I'm going to Israel in a week or so, and people say, you're afraid to go to Israel? I'd rather be in Israel if there's a nuclear war on the planet than in the United States, because Israel cannot be exterminated. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Berge, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a message entitled, The Final Rebellion, from Revelation chapter 20, where we find the devil being loosed for a period of time following the millennial reign of Christ, a time when things on earth most closely resemble the peace and harmony of the Garden of Eden. As we return, Dr. Brogy has noted that God will be hosting a number of judgments. He'll judge believers in heaven. He'll judge Jewish people on the earth, those who are alive at the second coming. And he'll judge the Gentile nations who have survived the tribulation. That judgment is found in Matthew 25, a passage commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Here we see that God will separate the sheep from the goats. As we pick up, Pastor Rogi further illustrates the point from Matthew chapter 13, which features parables addressing Christ separating the wheat from the tares and separating the good fish from the bad. Zero unbelievers will enter the kingdom of God. Well, how will God show those who are legitimately his and those who are not by their fruits? It's the theme that runs through Scripture. You will know them by their fruits. You're not saved by your fruits. But if you are saved, you'll have evidence. And so if you remember, he extends an invitation to those on his right, that is his sheep, to enter the kingdom that he has prepared since the creation of the world. Let me read it to you. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, and the Lord will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? Now, the basis of their entrance into the kingdom is how they treated the king. And so the statement that the king, Jesus, makes prompts them, the sheep, to ask a question. Listen, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. The king will say, The way you treated my brethren, brethren, brothers, is used in three ways in Scripture. Sometimes just generically like of an unbelieving Jew. Sometimes it's used of a born-again Christian. And sometimes it's used of a believing Jew. And Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of me, these my brethren. Remember, there's three groups of people in this great parable. There's the sheep, 
believing Gentiles, there's goats, unbelieving Gentiles, and then there's this third group, my brethren. Now, we take these verses all the time. We say, hmm, I want to make sure I'm saved. I better have a prison ministry, or I better get involved in feeding hungry people. And those are all good things to do, but it has nothing to do with this passage. He is talking about how people, Gentiles, will identify with Jews during this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. The sheep will stand with Israel even if it costs them their lives. The goats will stand with the Antichrist and the worst anti-Semitic behavior in the history of the world is going to unfold. Listen, uh, an anti-Semite today is giving evidence that they are treating God's brethren wrong, that they are an unbeliever. And so the goats will align with the world dictator and they will be removed from the earth and cast into eternal punishment. Listen, then he will answer them, the goats. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So on these two judgment, the believing Jews are separated from the unbelieving Jews. The believing Gentiles are separated from the unbelieving Gentiles. And also, not only will they enter the kingdom, in addition, Old Testament saints who had died millennia before will be resurrected at this time. Listen to Daniel chapter 12. Now, at that time, Michael, Michael the archangel, you know him, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, the Jewish people have known horror, it seems, since their inception. Whether it's the Assyrians who crushed them or the Babylonians or Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we studied in the book of Daniel, or whether it's the pogroms or the great Holocaust, Michael is saying there is coming a time of distress like Israel has never, ever, ever seen in all of their history. Jesus almost verbatim quotes this in Matthew 24, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor ever will. But Michael the archangel gives the Jewish people, Daniel's people, hope. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued despite the horrors of the tribulation where many Jews will have died for their faith, those who did not flee into the wilderness. Many also will awake from the dust of the ground these to everlasting life. So four groups of people entering the kingdom. Church saints, first Christ comes for his church, then we will come back with him, and we will rule and reign on the earth with him for a thousand years. Second group are tribulation saints. We studied them. They're in heaven. They will get their resurrected bodies along with all the Old Testament saints at the second coming of Christ. And the fourth group is that of those who enter in their natural bodies, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. By the way, that no unbelievers will enter the kingdom. And this is really important. Sometimes we use the word left behind. You don't want to be left behind. Depends for what event. You don't want to be left behind for the rapture. But you do want to be left behind at the second coming. So listen to what Jesus said. For as in those days before the flood, he's talking about his second coming. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. 
until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Now, Hal Lindsey went to the same seminary I did, and he came up with some view on this text that has nothing to do with anything. This is not the rapture of the church. He was not taught that there. Contextually, this is talking about the second coming. And so analogous to Noah's day, the individuals who are taken are the lost people who are carried away or taken away in judgment. And those who are left are Noah and his family who enter into a brand new world. The disciples in the parallel text ask a question. They say, where, Lord? That is, where are these people taken? To which he cryptically replies, where the dead body is, there the vultures will gather. That is, by this expression, he is affirming that unbelieving people will be taken away in judgment. Much as a dead body causes the vultures to gather on it, so unbelievers will be consigned to the judgment of God. Those left are believers who are privileged to enter into a brand new world and to reign and to rule with the Messiah. That brings me to the fourth stage of this judgment, which we will cover next time. But let me just mention it, and it's the final judgment of all time of all unbelievers. Only unbelievers are present in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. We call it the great white throne judgment. Now, I know I just stuck a theological fire hose down your mouth. This is not padlum. This is meat. And if we're ever going to grow up, there are so many Christians today who are just so twisted up in their theology they're caught up into the emotionalism of Beth Moore and this person and that person. And they're just, they don't know who's on first because they're untaught. Look, if this is new to you, I get it. You might want to go back and listen to this two or three times and let it sink in. But let me give you again the big picture. As God gives the schematic in Scripture, it's called the premillennial view. Right now we are in the church age. God is building the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. It began on the day of Pentecost. There's coming a day when the final person who's going to believe in Jesus in this age will believe, and the Father will say, go get your bride. The church will be raptured. We will go up. The tribulation will begin for the next seven years. It's a terrible time, and at the end of that seven years, Jesus will come to the earth, he will bring his church with him. We will be there with Old Testament saints who will be raised at this time, with tribulation saints who will be raised at this time, and we will also enter the kingdom with surviving Jew and Gentiles, and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Now, that's the big overall schematic and sketch. Now, keep that in mind as we read here verse 7. When the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Remember, we're trying to ask and answer two critical questions. Number one, precisely, who is Satan deceiving? It won't be anyone who's been saved and redeemed. If you're in your resurrected body, will you be able to sin 
Of course not. Remember the promise of Philippians. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Or 1 John 3, 2, that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So all who are in their resurrected body, tribulation saints who died during the tribulation who are resurrected, Old Testament saints who are resurrected, church saints who have been raptured and resurrected, they will not be able to sin. What about those who enter into their natural bodies? Yes, they will be able to sin. They'll be just like you and me. Sometimes we're consistent, sometimes we're not. You may be redeemed, you are certainly eternally secure if you've been born again, but you can still sin. The one who says he does not sin makes God a liar. We all stumble in many ways, James the apostle says. So they will certainly be able to sin, but will they be able to reject Jesus and be cast into the lake of fire? Of course not, they're eternally secure. So who's sinning? Who is responding in a sinful way where they listen to the devil and with Satan are cast into the lake of fire? The children of those who entered into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. Now remember, the curse will be lifted off of the creation. Men will live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years like they did before the day of the great flood. Isaiah 65 says, For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Now, Audrey and I, it's just her and I, we started with two. But we look at our family tree now, and it's like, man, it's really getting big. What if we were married for a thousand years? And our children and our grandchildren, our great, 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 great grandchildren, I tell you, we would have a lot of kids. Remember, this is the time there's no famines on the earth. Messiah is ruling with a rod of iron. No one will be exterminated through a war. There'll be no natural disasters. No one will be attacked by a wild animal. The world will be repopulated. But just as each of my children and grandchildren must make a decision for Jesus, so the children of tribulation saints must make a decision. You're not a Christian because your mom and dad are. God has children. He has no grandchildren. You must personally decide whether or not you will receive Jesus as Lord. By the way, this kicks out the post-tribulational view. There are some people who think, well, Jesus is uh, going to come at the second coming. That will be the next event. Someday the tribulation will start, seven years. At the end of the tribulation, he will come. Well, what happens when he comes? Well, I guess we go up and we make a U-turn and we come down and then he rules and reigns for a thousand years. Well, if they're all in resurrected bodies, who's going to rebel with the devil at the end? So what do most people do? They just become an amillennialist. There's no such thing as a literal thousand-year reign. Oh, forget Israel. Forget the promises of a kingdom. They forsook them. No, they did not. They may have disobeyed, but God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham that had nothing to do with Israel's obedience. He is going to keep his promises no matter what. It forces a pre-tribulation belief because the only people who can have children who will rebel is if there are people who will enter the kingdom in natural bodies whose children do not decide. You with me? Now, that's the who. Why? Why would anyone want to follow the devil at the end of this thousand years? Let's keep reading verse 8. 
and he, the devil, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, meaning the four compass points, north, south, east, and west, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, John mentions here Gog and Magog. Now, think this through because these are two unique names, and sometimes people get them confused with a war that has not yet happened that is described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. We studied it all the way back in Revelation 4. Do you remember this chart? Gog, of course, is a prince, a leader, and Magog represents the people. And so there's going to be people from around the Middle East, including Russia and current-day Turkey and Iran and Libya and Sudan and Central Asia. They're named in Scripture. And they're all going to attack Israel. And it appears that this happens early on, maybe even after the rapture, before the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel, or shortly after the rapture and the peace treaty is signed, because it takes seven years, the Bible says, to clean up the mess. But here, this phrase, Gog and Magog, and by the way, this happens in Israel. If you've not read those two chapters, it's an exciting read. I mean, all these nations are going to come against Israel, which will make no doubt the Antichrist a star as a man of peace, but God will supernaturally deliver them. I mean, bullets and bombs won't accomplish their purposes, and God will spare Israel. You cannot spare Israel. I'm going to Israel in a week or so, and people say you're afraid to go to Israel. I'd rather be in Israel if there's a nuclear war on the planet than in the United States, because Israel cannot be exterminated. God promised to fulfill his purposes and plans through the people of Israel. Now, there are three big battles that happen in the final time frame of human history. There's the battle of Gog and Magog that is somewhere either right before the rapture or right after the rapture. That's found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's the battle of Armageddon. We study that in detail. And then there's this final battle at the end of the thousand years. But you see, he uses this phrase, Gog and Magog, because it becomes a phrase that really illustrates people who are in rebellion against God. We do the same thing today with the word Armageddon. And I hear the guy say, well, we've got this Armageddon-type hurricane that is coming upon us. You know, it's just a, a word that we use very loosely today to describe any kind of uh, disaster or uh, somehow use emblematically of a horrible time that is coming. Oh, that's how John is using it. In fact, you can almost read the verse without Gog and Magog and change nothing without it. And he, the devil, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners to gather them for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now follow me. Here they are. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, not everyone will receive Christ. You say, why wouldn't they receive Jesus? I mean, he's here on the earth. He's ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. Why didn't they receive him the first time when he was here? And why won't people receive him today? For the same reason, the stubbornness and love for evil and for sin. But further in verse 9, and they will come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You know the beloved city by now. It's Jerusalem. It's identified as such in the Revelation. And so why? Why are they going to listen to the devil? Because they will not submit to Jesus as Lord. And all those people who gave a feigned obedience to the Messiah during this thousand years, 
Like the sand of the seashore, a vast multitude, when Satan is released and given freedom, they will listen to the deception. Why? Because they didn't believe the truth. Third and finally, there's Satan in his freedom, there's Satan in his forces, then there's Satan in his finale. I'm almost done. Hang with me. What takes place is really not so much a battle as it is a divine execution. Look at it. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Not one shot is fired, not one sword is unsheathed, and the sky bursts into flame, and all of the armies that come against God's Christ are exterminated in a moment. And now Satan's doom is finalized. Look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Which, by the way, mitigates against those who teach annihilationism. Seventh-day Adventists say hell is not forever. Um, uh, JW's, Jehovah Witness, teach that the unbeliever just dies and he's exterminated and turns to dust and no longer exists. No, we will see when we come to the next paragraph that unbelievers will live forever. The beast and the false prophet, two humans, they've been already in the lake of fire, the first occupants, for a thousand years, and they're still alive. And now Satan is added, and we'll see next time, all of the unbelievers of all time are added, and they will be there forever and ever and ever. Now, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? Let me suggest three applications as I close. Number one, there is a lesson here today about our fallenness. There's a lesson about our fallenness. Under the theocracy of Christ, with Satan bound in the abyss, Jesus will rule over the nations of the world. And yet, while many will obey because they have to obey, it's kind of like today. Some of you have children. And they obey because they have to obey. They're in their fence. But when the fence is opened, sometimes you see what they're really made of. You see whether or not their conversion is genuine. The fence will be opened at the end of the thousand years. And you will see who the real believers are, those people who met Jesus, who were born during the millennium, and those who were born who did not meet Jesus. And it will, in essence, display what God says about the depravity of man, that the heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. You see, today there are so many explanations. You know, all these mass shootings, it's mental illness. It's a whole lot more than that, my friends. The greatest problem is not what set of parents you went home with from the hospital. Man's greatest problem is not whether you're breastfed or bottle-fed. Man's greatest problem is not whether or not your parents bribed you with candy. Your biggest problem is not the school you were attended, whether you're educated or uneducated. Man's biggest problem has always been the same, and it is a problem of depravity and of sin. Second, there's a lesson here about God's ultimate victory. There's a lesson here about God's victory. Wickedness is going to receive its due judgment, and what we will study next time is chilling. When we look around and we see the difficulties in this world, and especially when you see what appears to be the wicked prospering and the righteous failing, like what is going on? 
It seems like there's no consequence for the unbeliever as he enjoys his sin and is an evangelist for sin. It's all going to change. We will see that we are on the winning side and God will be glorified. Third and finally, there is a lesson here about man's need to believe. Again, the next and final paragraph in this chapter is so sobering that you'd think that if someone really absorbed it and understood its implications that they would want to immediately repent, but they don't. Not long ago, I had to fix something in my home and I needed some strong glue. And I went out into the garage and I found these two old tubes. I don't think they even make them anymore where one tube is like a hardener and you mix it with another one and you stir it all up and then you cement whatever it is you're trying to make. So what is the hardening agent against God? Very simple, it is sin. Jesus said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. Please understand, it's not that, well, God just softens some hearts and he lets some go to heaven and leaves the rest to go to hell, or God chooses some to to go to heaven and then he chooses others to go to hell. It's not like that at all. That is a distortion of the justice and the love and the truth of Scripture. People who go to hell go there because they've hardened their heart against the truth and they chose to do it all by themselves. The Bible warns that a day is coming when the Antichrist will step on the planet. The one who's coming, Paul says, is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And please notice the reason why this happens to them. Because... They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. If you're here today and you're not saved and you think, oh, if the rapture happens, I'll get my heart right. I'll finally believe what my friend and my parents and my preacher's been telling me. No, you won't. For this reason, God will send upon them. For what reason? Because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. It will be too late for these people during the tribulation. They won't be a part of the great multitude who's saved. Those are people who've never heard the gospel before in clarity and power. This group, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. In other words, God will harden their heart because of their rebellion in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. I want you to know that the opposite of truth is not error. It is sin. When you meet a person who says, well, I'm not sure there's a God, or I don't believe the Bible, or I don't think there's a heaven or a hell, you are dealing with a person who has a moral issue in their heart. They are suppressing the truth about God in their hearts. And if they stay there long enough, the Bible teaches they will believe a lie, either in this life or after the rapture of the church. Listen, if I was not absolutely sure that Christ was my Savior, I would want to fix it today. And you can because whosoever will may come. And if you will call upon Jesus in faith and believe what God says in this book about you, that your heart is wicked and you need a Savior, He will save you. He will receive you today. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. To listen again to today's message, The Final Rebellion, or any of the messages in our series on the Revelation, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. And for today's message, ask for program REV59. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Won't you consider an end-of-year donation? For more information, click the Give button on the Search the Scriptures app or website, or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a look at the destiny of the doomed. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.